We're almost done with Isaiah. We're in Isaiah 65 tonight, as you can see, and a very interesting chapter. Uh, It presents some pretty important details regarding the end times that uh, should not be overlooked. Not all the details are clear uh, as we get to verse 17. Um, I'm not completely decided on what Isaiah is talking about. Is he talking about the millennium? Or, uh, or is he talking about the eternal state? And when you read uh, just a variety of different uh, men who take the text serious, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to tell. But um, and so anyway, uh, the clarity uh, really comes in uh, the New Testament with Peter and his epistles, and then, of course, John and the Revelation. Um, I don't have time to get into all those details tonight, but I will give you what I think uh, Isaiah is talking about. Um, so not all the details are clear. They are significant, especially ones that we can understand. Um, in the, the chapter, though, uh, at least in the, the first major section, there's a contrast between three groups of people and then uh, at least two different eras uh, in, in, in reality. Uh, the three groups of people are the Gentiles, uh, the first one who seek after the Lord, and then there's the Jews who are called by the name of the Lord but are rebellious, idolatrous, and then uh, those uh, Jews that are faithful. So you have Gentiles seeking after the Lord, you have Jews departing from the Lord, and you have Jews that are staying with the Lord. Those three groups are brought out in the text. Um, among the Jews, those called by his name, um, is the disobedient, and these are the ones that will inherit the curse from the covenant. Remember God uh, told the Jews that if you abide by the terms of the covenant, uh, then you will, you will reap all of these great blessings, these uh, miraculous things in the natural world. But if you abandon the covenant, then all of the curses will fall upon you. And so to the one group that has abandoned God, they inherit all the curses. And then the group that has remained faithful, they are the ones that are projected forward in an eschatological context to be the recipients of the the promises to Abraham and the blessings of the covenant. And um, pretty crazy stuff. So... um, And then in here, this is important because you have redeemed Jews and you have redeemed Gentiles together in an eschatological context while being distinct from one another. Uh, You may have heard of replacement theology where they believe that the church has replaced um, Israel. But here we see that both of them are placed in the end together, but they're distinct. There's a difference maintained between them. Yahweh is the singular object of faith, but the two groups remain distinct in God's eyes. So three groups of people. And then there's, as I said, there's at least two eras, potentially three. I haven't decided. Uh, so there's, the, there's now, there's the present reality that we live in, this world, this, uh, you know, the, the current earth and the current heavens. Then there's uh, possibly in the text is a description of the millennium, and then uh, there's definitely a mention of the new heavens and the new earth. And so dividing the new heavens and the new earth, that reality from the millennium is what's difficult. And uh, I don't know completely where I stand uh, as far as what Isaiah is talking about. It's very clear what John is talking about from Revelation chapter 20 to 21. 
But here, if he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, they're out of chronology. And anybody could identify that if he's making a distinction. And for some people, when it comes to uh, prophecy, it's not a big deal to confuse, not to confuse chronology, but to just present things out of chronology. And because we see in Isaiah, we see Jesus' second coming, sometimes mentioned before his first coming. And sometimes we see him in the same breath, divided by a comma. And um, so, I'm not going to clear the difficulty up tonight, but we'll talk about it. All right? Well, why don't you stand up and we'll read the text together. I wish I had all the answers. Isaiah 65. God speaking through Isaiah. He says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts, of people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemy on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, and from Judah an heir of my mountains, my elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Acre a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. You are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, and who furnish a drink offering for many. Therefore I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes, and chose that in which I do not delight. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry." Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, because they are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. 
They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. Shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Well, Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, while we certainly do not understand everything that's been revealed about the future, it has been revealed. And because we know your character, Lord, your reputation, you will bring everything that you've said to pass. So Lord, teach us tonight. Help us to unravel some of the things that you've said to us and and made encourage us, Lord, and help us to look forward to what all of this will be in reality in our experience. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. One more chapter. We've been in Isaiah for a little while, huh? Nobody's in a rush. I hope not. I'm hoping the Lord is in a rush to return. So, yeah. Let's go back to verse 1. So the Lord speaking, he says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Those not called by the name of the Lord is a reference to the Gentiles. It's in contrast to the Jews who were called by the name of the Lord. And so we have the Gentiles immediately introduced in the text, and we'll talk about that a little bit uh, more, about why that's special in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's not common, a, a positive discussion about the nations, about the Gentiles, especially when it refers to uh, their redemption, their salvation. So, yeah, the, the, they're coming to the Lord. Uh, it's not something fulfilled in the Old Testament. And by the time the New Testament rolls around, the beginning of the first century, the idea of salvation going to the Gentiles was almost blasphemous to the Jews. You remember Paul as he was being rejected from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue. And then he said, well, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And then when he stood on the stairs in Jerusalem, because the mob was trying to kill him, he, he, he'd mentioned that to the crowd, uh, that he had reached out and reached out and reached out to the Jewish people. And he said, what? They proved themselves unworthy. So I turned to the Gentiles, and that's when the crowd shouted, he's not worthy to live. Very strange, very strange. So the, <clears throat> the mention of the Gentiles seeking the Lord and, and uh, being redeemed, uh, it, it first came to us in Isaiah in chapter 2, it happened again in chapter 11. We see it here in 65, and there's a, another brief mention of it in chapter 66. So very rare, uh, uncommon. Uh, in prophetic literature, the, the Gentiles, they don't seek the Lord until after Messiah. That's what Isaiah 11 verse 10 says. It says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, 
for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, the, the root of Jesse, of course, is a reference to Christ, but you see there how it's just slipped in there and then it's abandoned. The Gentiles will seek him, let's move on. And that's how almost every reference in the Old Testament goes when it talks about the redemption of the Gentiles. They'll seek him, let's move on and talk about the Jews because they were the covenant people. But prophetically, it's, it's anticipated that by some means, and here the means is, is mentioned by the Messiah, they'll, they'll come, they'll come. Now, you know, what and how things will unravel in regard to the Gentiles, that's just vaguely expressed by the prophets. Uh, maybe you've heard that uh, some, I've heard commentators, I've read uh, commentaries that say that the Jews were to be a witness to the nations, uh, to be reaching them. I don't know how many times I've heard that. I've never found it anywhere in the Old Testament. Not one reference. David says that he would, you know, share the great things of the Lord to the Gentile. But nowhere does it say that Israel was appointed to be a light to the Gentiles. It's something that's in the future that will come through the Messiah. So how they're saved and what all that looks like, it's really not explained too much um, in the Old Testament. It's not until after the resurrection we know that, that the Lord established a new covenant and he created a new community called the church that so was made of Jews and Gentiles, but primarily of Gentiles. Okay? And the church, as we said earlier, did not replace Israel. The church is just very different than Israel. And those differences actually lie in the two covenants, but also ethnically, they're different. Okay? So covenants, ethnicity, promises, they're just so different. And when you read the book of Hebrews, he just brings out the differences very much, very different. So be that as it may, the church was unrevealed in the Old Testament, okay? But the Gentiles, that would be the mechanism or the community that God brings them into, and he redeems them by way of Messiah. Listen to how Paul describes some of this issue of the Gentiles and the church together. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So the Greeks, and, and, and the way that Paul uses the word mystery, it doesn't mean something that, that people were trying to figure out. It actually means something that was hidden to past generations, and then God reveals it. Does that make sense? It's something concealed in the past, unrevealed, and something that, that God shows to people in, at the current time. So he here says, uses the word mystery, and then he just comes out and says, it was hidden from previous generations. This idea of the church and exactly how God would bring Gentiles into his redemptive economy. He goes on, he says, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. We were a mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the salvation of the Gentiles, um, so often discussed in the New Testament, is only addressed in passing in the Old, as we see in Isaiah 65, 1, and then one last time we'll look at uh, at the beginning of March in chapter 66. So following this brief mention of the Gentiles, 
they get a whole verse and a chapter. Uh, seeking after the Lord, Isaiah now turns to these two groups within the Jews, the rebellious and the faithful. And um, as we get into the sins of the unfaithful, uh, it's, I hope it's, we're very familiar with this uh, by this uh, time in Isaiah. We've been covering their sins, uh, the centuries of sins um, up to this point in the book of Isaiah. So I want to deal with them in brevity. I don't want to rehash it all. If you want to read about all the sins of Israel, uh, you have your Old Testament. They're all recorded. So he says, God says, so this is in contrast. He says, a people not called by my name were seeking after me. And here, I have, I have stretched out or I have been stretching out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. Now that's brevity right there because he's been doing it for centuries, right? For generations and generations who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts, people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of bricks, who sit among the graves, necromancers, spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things in their vessels. So God's relentless love and pursuit of the covenant people was rewarded with their relentless love and pursuit of idols and these constant violations of the covenant. So they were sacrificing in gardens. The Jews were only allowed to sacrifice in one place. That was the temple. They were on the hills. They were doing all kinds of stuff. That is clearly idolatry. And then they're eating swine's flesh. This is a violation of the covenant. Okay, so idolatry, violations of the covenant. They turn their back on God. And then they dove so deeply into uh, what has been called mystery religions, you know, these deeply into pagan religion, that they began to despise the Jews that were remaining loyal. Listen, look at this, how, how it says this. They, the idolatrous Jews, say to the faithful, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. And God says, these are smoke in my nostrils and fire that burns all the day. So they, these rebellious Jews came to a place where they believed that their, their saturation in paganism, pagan religion, made them holier than, who has a King James? We are holier than thou. Where do you think that phrase came from? We are holier than thou. We don't want any contact with you, no fellowship, don't touch us. Because we're so holy in this paganism that if you touch us, you will defile us. Holier than thou. Too bad Christians have been, uh, that's been in, in reference to Christians who have created this persona that they're superior to other people, which has no resemblance to Jesus' disposition. So if we combine the first phrase of verse 3 and the last phrase of our current passage, we, we get a good idea of God's perspective of these particular Jews, okay, immersed in paganism. They're steadily provoking the wrath of God. It requires a just response. So God says, behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but will repay, even repay into their bosom, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. So, of course, the response is judgment. But here in the, the overall context of the chapter, we're not talking about another judgment among many others or in a, a series of more. We're talking about 
the final judgment. Okay? This will be the last one. This will be it. And God says that it, it won't just be their personal iniquities. It's going to be the collective iniquities since their fathers began to rebel. And that will all be brought to bear on this generation that God decides to judge. The last generation of rebellious Jews, they're going to get it all. All the curses of the covenant will fall upon them. But then a distinction is going to be made between the profane Jews and those who stay loyal. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it for a blessing is in it, so I so will I do for my servants' sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from who? Clearly a reference to ethnic Israel. And from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. So out from this rebellious group, God's going to draw out a remnant of ethnic Jews. Okay, loyal. Okay, he says his elect who will be faithful to him and to them he's going to fulfill the covenant, the promises that he made to Abraham. He's going to plant them in the land. He says they'll be heir of the mountains, the hills of Israel, okay? the land of promise. This distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And you know, I think what is fascinating about the passage, the way that this is presented by the Lord is that you know, if, if he, because he always makes a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, but if he can't find any righteous, you know what he does in his providence and his grace? Is he brings forth those. That's how he does it. It says he will bring forth, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob. If in the end they all end up rebellious, I'll do something special. And, and the only reason that he will do that is because of the promises he's made to Abraham. You guys, he has to fulfill those. He's, he's bound himself to those promises, to an ethnic group, the, 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 the children of Abraham. He says, for them, he says, Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. So for this future redeemed population of ethnic Jews, he says, really prosperity is going to cover the land of promise. So from the, the meadows of Sharon, that's in the, the, the far northeast uh, from like Carmel northward, through, down through the, the southeast hills of Achor, that's Jericho and south within the, the borders of Israel. So it's just going to prosper the flocks and the herds. It's going to be in abundance. And there they'll pasture, so it, it, it gives the sense of, of, of it being peaceful. Israel hasn't had a lot of peace throughout their centuries, have they? They certainly haven't uh, in the last few months since October 7th. But then, so a brief word about them comes back again to this current generation that are cursed because of their iniquities. He says, but you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain. That's speaking of the Temple Mount. Who prepare a table for Gad and who furnish a drink offering for many. Therefore, I will number you for the sword and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. So he here mentions these idols of choice. Now, 
I, I said that we would cover in brevity all their other stuff. Well, this is the first time that, that Gad is presented as a deity and then uh, many, okay? So instead of worshiping the Lord in the temple, they've been on the hills or what other prophets call the high places, the Bamas of Israel. They've prepared a table for Gad. Now, Gad was an idol of luck or fortune, and then Meni was a god of fate and destiny. So then there's this interesting play on Hebrew words. They've sought the god of fate, but your fate will be death. So you've, you've, you've sought a fate to, to be filled with, with um, uh, you know, luck and fortune. But because it's idolatrous and it's profane, you'll get the fruit of that. You'll get the curse that comes from it. You'll inherit the sword against you and you've been appointed for slaughter. God has tried. Remember, he's called out day and night and he's done it for generations and generations. They would not respond. He sent uh, deliverers to them. He sent prophets to them. He's let them endure the discipline of other nations harshly just to wake them up. And he's done it so many times that he's, he's done with it. And so he's going to let one group go to destruction. And uh, out from that will emerge this group, this remnant uh, that we see um, in Isaiah, we see in the new covenant as well. Sad, sad history. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall not, or you shall eat, but you'll be hungry. Behold, my servants. And, and I think that's so interesting. These rebellious Jews who are destined for destruction because of his relationship to Abraham, he still calls them his servants. It's very interesting. So whether Jews, no matter their state of religion or their state of faith, they're still called the servants of God. In Romans 11, uh, they're still called my people. He says, his people. He says, they shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. So a reference again to the elect. For the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth and he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. So he's saying that, that this this current generation of rebellious Jews, they're going to, be, they're going to inherit such a curse and be, be dealt with in such a way that the future righteous generation will use them as a curse. You will be like that, like them. And God wants to purge the earth of these kinds of people so that when people swear, they swear by the God of heaven, the God of truth. They don't use his name in a profane way as they blasphemed his name on the hills. He's going to thoroughly cleanse everything and so that the former things, sorrows and all of that, will be forgotten. How will he do that? Well, he says, for behold, I create new heavens and new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. You know, it's interesting that when Israel was going into the land of Canaan, <clears throat> God says, I want you to go in there and I want you to destroy every trace of paganism. I don't want you to see an idol that would you know, give you an idea of what would it be like to worship this idol, to honor this deity and see if there's any blessing in it. He says every altar, every, everything that resembled idolatry, he says I want it, I want it gone. 
I want it out of there. But that's pretty difficult. I mean, we're still digging up just treasures of idolatry in the land of Israel, in Jerusalem, all over the land. Archaeology is just a never-ending thing in Israel. And uh, what we, the only thing that we should find is remnants of Judaism, but we don't. We find remnants of, still to this day, the Canaanites who were, uh, who, who were extinct, basically. It's crazy. But, you know, the world, you look around the world right now, it's, it's so corrupt. How could you possibly purge our current reality, the earth that we live, so that we couldn't remember any of the past sorrows, troubles, idolatry? How could we possibly do that? So God is like, forget about it. <laughs> Let's start over, okay? It's just like with us. You know, we, we say that, you know, God can do anything that's actually possible. He can't do what's actually impossible. And something that he can't do is reform your flesh. He can't. He says it in Romans 7. He can't do it. So you know what he does? He wants to kill it, destroy it, and then he wants to create something new. He's going to do that with us completely in our state of glorification, and he's going to do it with the material universe. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. The former sorrows, sins, troubles, as the previous verse says, that'll all be gone. And then this material world will be gone, and none of any of those things will be remembered. They won't come to mind. So think about that, a new heavens and a new earth. I mean, the implications of that is just mind-blowing. It should stop us in our tracks. As Peter says, this will all be dissolved, and then it will be replaced with something new. I mean, minus God's people, everything here will be gone and completely replaced. Try to save this planet all you want. It will remain, as God promised, in seed time and harvest. There's no amount of climate change that can stop what God has put in motion, as he promises. But it's not, it's not going to be around forever. It will be exchanged for a whole new thing. And what's interesting is, you know, what that reality will be like is, is so mysterious to us. We have details, uh, but it's just, it's out there, okay? Bits and pieces of information, but not much to go on. Uh, we know that our memory of the old will be scrubbed, uh, just like the former sufferings and all of that. We won't remember this earth uh, and what happened on it. Uh, you know, it is interesting when you study the new heavens and the earth, it seems that the laws of nature will be changed, okay? Um, we know that we will be different, but how different exactly we don't know. Um, our bodies will be different and will be free of sin and free not to sin. Uh, with a change in our bodies and in the laws of nature, I mean, our experience is going to be radically different, radically different. I've always thought, you know, will our eyes see more of the light spectrum? I don't know. You know, will our ears hear all frequencies? Uh, I mean, I could use an upgrade in my brain activity. Uh, will we use 100% of our brains? Uh, what do they say right now we use? Teenage boys, well, anyway, that's another story. But, I mean, we probably don't use very much of it. But then, will we use all of it? Um, Paul and John essentially say that we'll have a, a physical, metaphysical existence and um, our bodies will be like Jesus's after the resurrection, which was very interesting. Yeah? Um, certainly more details are omitted than revealed. 
Um, and even if they were revealed because of the current reality that live, we live in, we wouldn't be able to understand them. In fact, I think that's why Isaiah um, can't really put his finger on the rest of the verses that, that follow in the details of what he's talking about. It's like in Ezekiel when he's trying to explain uh, his vision that he's having. Um, he says it was in the likeness of the similarity of something like that. You know, he's just seeing something that's blowing his mind and he doesn't really know how to, to handle it. You know, he's trying to take what he understands about the world that he lives in with the language uh, that he has, his vocabulary, and apply it to something that is wild. Okay. So anyway, it's coming. Um, hope you're getting ready for it. You can't stop it. He says, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing. So now new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. And her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. What a relief for God to finally be able to just joy eternally in his people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. So those who believe that God uh, has set aside the nation of Israel as an ethnic identity, they have to answer a question from uh, this particular chapter in these passages. Why is God promising the descendants of Jacob and Judah an inheritance in the new heaven and the new earth if he set them aside? Because he's looking forward right now to that reality and they're present. It's interesting. How can he set them aside and promise them a place in eternity? It's crazy. Verse 8 and 9 and all of this last section are clearly promises to ethnic Israel, to a remnant that God will preserve for the reception of the covenant promises. One of the strangest theologies I've ever considered in my life is replacement theology. This has no place in scripture. These future redeemed Jews will live in the new Jerusalem that's on the new earth that's floating in the new heavens. And uh, it's all exciting. All their centuries of suffering and sin and sorrow will come to an end. That's exciting. Okay. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. Here's where the challenges come in, okay, to interpreting this text. As I said before, is this describing the millennium, you know, that literal physical reign of Christ over the earth, or is this the eternal state that follows the millennium? Now, it, when we go to Revelation, that's all very, very clear. Uh, and, and when we're in Isaiah, we know there is a messianic, a physical, literal messianic reign uh, kingdom over planet earth. We know that. Uh, we also know from Isaiah that there is an eternal state. When we get to Revelation, we see all the chronology in, in just beautifully displayed for us. But when he mentions the new heavens and the new earth and then describes this, it looks out of order. So what is going on? Verse 17 through 19 indicate that the section is committed to describing reality in the eternal state, though some of the language, depending on how you take it, could describe the millennium, okay? But Isaiah could also be using, you know, familiar language of his present time and culture to describe the new by way of metaphors, figures of speech, and uh, hypotheticals. So, I'm not, as I said, entirely convinced either way, uh, but I do lean textually 
uh, toward this being a, an interesting way of describing the eternal state, okay? I don't wanna read the millennium back into this without having you know, precedent clearly for it, all right? Uh, I was uh, reading many different commentaries on this. I was dialoguing with another friend on this and, um, and I had mentioned that I said, I think our problem might be our knowledge of the millennium because now that we have that knowledge, we're tempted to pour it into this and it may just be convoluting uh, what Isaiah had meant to say. So yeah, as far as metaphors and hypotheticals being used, I think that verse 20 is a good example a child cannot die at 100 years old because at 100 years old, he would no longer be a child. So I think that Isaiah is using some interesting language to describe uh, all of this. Yeah. So, I mean, hypothetically speaking, if someone were able to die during the eternal state and, and they died at 100, uh, they would be considered a child. They would be considered to have never grown up. I think that's kind of what Isaiah is saying. Uh, I don't think he's, he's not trying to communicate longevity of life, but really the absence of death, which he actually has already discussed with us in Isaiah chapter 25. So he's not going to contradict himself. Amen? Yeah, the absence of time, uh, the absence of death. Yeah. If it, if it were possible uh, for a sinner to survive in the new earth undetected for only 100 years, he'd be accursed. It's just a strange world. Um, the sense that I get from the passage is really the eradication of the power of death and the presence of, of sin altogether. It's just banished. So Isaiah 25, it says, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. So we're talking about the annihilation of death itself which, by the way, requires the resurrection of Christ, doesn't it? have to defeat death. He goes on, he says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. Okay, now, that was the, the fate of Israel for centuries, is that they would plant vineyards, they would build houses, and then you have the Midianites and the Moabites and everybody come in and take all that they had done. You can read the story of, of Gideon, who was uh, threshing uh, wheat in a wine press because he was afraid that if they caught him doing that, they would all come and steal his freshly um, sifted wheat. And uh, God says, that's never going to happen again. He says, they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Interesting, a tree... Um, the longevity of a tree. I have read that they believe that some of the olive trees on the Mount of Olives were there when Jesus was there. So we're talking about uh, getting rid of time, getting rid of death. God's elect will just enjoy eternally what they've inherited. Yeah, it's nothing will be like their past. It'll be utterly safe, be utterly secure from enemies and invaders because they won't exist anymore. They'll be gone. He says, they shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. Shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. Now, mind you, the, the offspring of the Jews, uh, was, are there faithful Jews that lived in the Old Testament? 
don't you think they'll inherit the promise of Abraham? Absolutely. Don't you expect to see David? I, I expect to see David. Jesus called him the great king. I expect to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob we always wonder about, but I expect to see him. Okay? Uh, we expect to see Joseph. Do you think Job will be there? Job declared that he would be there, right? We expect to see Isaiah and the prophets. So generations of Jews. These are all the blessed of the Lord. All the offspring of Israel that has believed on the Lord will be there. God says, I'll answer. They will answer him. Nothing will be in vain. Everything will endure purely because of their relationship with God. Now, no one will be having children in the eternal state. Um, The ladies say amen. But if they could, there would be no troubles or distress involved. You know, no fear of stillborn, just as the promises to Israel. No fear of losing a woman in labor. All the troubles of this current reality will be no more. No sorrow, no suffering, no death, no decay, no vanity, no enemies, no loss. And then there's this, this intimate connection with God and his people, this closeness. The, the attentiveness of God to his people will be more intimate than ever. There, there'll be no need to wait on the Lord, for he'll always be present. It'll, just before you ask, he'll answer. It's just everything is just so close at that time. It will exceed the glory of the Garden of Eden. And this is a fun one. Almost everybody associates this with the millennium. But I'm not convinced it's there. And I do believe that in the eternal state there will be animals. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is very interesting. Um, It's very interesting. In the garden before sin entered, all creatures were vegetarian. All of them were. Uh, you know, and it's, it is interesting that we identify carnivorous animals by their teeth. But a panda bear doesn't eat meat. And it has carnivorous uh, features in its teeth. Fruit bats, they look like a Datsun. And they have teeth like that, right? Yeah. You know that in uh, a lot of the, uh, uh, even T-Rex, they find plant cellulose uh, in their teeth. Very interesting stuff. Uh, but yeah, before sin entered the world, everything and us, we were vegetarian. I pray to God that that, it doesn't continue in the eternal state. Uh, But death and bloodshed, killing, suffering, it's all products of the fall. But in the eternal state, the curse will be lifted from the animal kingdom and all the killing will cease. You know, the herbivore will not fear the carnivore and the carnivore will lose its predatorial instinct to hunt and kill. It'll all be gone. Well... There should be hamburgers, should be bacon and other things. So. But this is what I think is so interesting in the text. For his role in the fall of man, the curse will remain on the serpent. You remember in, in Genesis 3 when God turned to the serpent, he said, dust you shall eat all of your days. In the text, referring back to Genesis 3, it says the serpent is going to continue to have dust for his food. This, I think, is just so fascinating. His deed is unforgivable, and so he remains unredeemable. It's a reference to Satan. He'll forever be fixed in his cursed condition. We will be glorified, but the great enemy of God and man's soul, he will never be restored. So it's just so interesting. But this place and the memory of it uh, has an expiration date. That was 
fixed in my mind today, sitting at uh, a funeral home with a, a couple that just lost their, uh, their baby. They had a stillborn baby. And um, I just was sitting there thinking, um, the expiration date has already been marked on the package. It's coming to an end. We will say goodbye, uh, not just to the reality, but to the memory of all of it. It'll be so amazing. Yeah. And um, we will be remade, and a place that is suitable for glorified human beings will be remade for us. And we'll enter into the eternal state, and we will see God, as the scriptures say, and uh, we will forever dwell with him. That really is the greatest expectation of our faith. Amen? So if you're a Gentile here tonight, um, including myself, fairly Scandinavian looking, we in some senses will explore later on as we go through eschatology how we will be incorporated into uh, the eternal state and what role we'll play in the millennium, uh, the kingdom and all of that. Interesting stuff. Uh, Isaiah doesn't go into it, but um, we'll be getting into it. So I think probably second to dwelling with God uh, is that we'll be truly free from sin and we'll be free not to sin. Amen? All right. Go ahead and stand up and get you out of here. I went a little long. All right, Father, um, just thank you, Lord, for your promises. Lord, we're grateful for prophecy. It gives us so much to look forward to, even though we can't comprehend all of it, but I think it's not being able to comprehend and not knowing when, Lord, it, it does. It, it gives us this feeling of suspense to look forward to something new and, um, and even maybe be a little anxious about it. But Lord, we look forward to standing before you and you ushering us into this new reality that you've prepared for us. As, as Jesus said, if, I, if I'm going to go away, and I am, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then where I am, you will be also. I'll come for you. So Lord, we, I believe that's next on the agenda as you come in for us and um, where we can forever be with our Savior. So Lord, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.